this morning and ask the Lord to speak to you, ask him to send his spirit to meet with you this morning. take a a moment and lift up somebody else in prayer. Just spend a a few silent moments interceding on behalf of somebody. Maybe someone in this room just asking that God would pour out his blessings on their lives. Unexpected God, your advent alarms us. Wake us from drowsy worship, from the sleep that neglects love, from the sedative of misdirected frenzy, and awaking us now to your coming, bending our angers into your peace. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, good morning. Let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to John chapter 1. Glad that you are here to worship with us. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at First Colony Christian Church. We're glad that you have joined us in worship this morning. Uh, we'll start off in John chapter 1. We're in the middle of a series called The Incarnation Matters, where we are preparing for Christmas and the season of Advent by thinking through um, the incarnation, the word becoming flesh as we approach this time of celebration where we are confronted with God in a manger and all of the things that that means for us, for our faith, for our lives, for the world around us. Last week, if you remember, we talked about some of the more kind of nuanced details of the Incarnation, how it is exactly that humanity and deity resided perfectly in the person, this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, This week, we're going to move on into some of the implications for that. So, um, granted that as Christians, we believe the eternal Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a human being, as absurd as that can sound to us, as that's a central belief of ours as Christians. What does that mean? I think there are actually monumental implications uh, for our lives, for how we should live, for how we should view God, for how we should view others uh, that flow out of the incarnation, the, the truth that the word became flesh, this truth that we celebrate at Christmas time. So like we're doing for this whole series, we're kind of founding this in John chapter 1. Uh, so we'll pick it up in verse 1, John 1, uh, verse 1, if you'll read along with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and to his own people, um, they did not receive him. Verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, 
He has made him known. He has revealed him to us. If you remember from last week, I gave you a phrase that I thought captures the heart of the message of Christmas. And it was that the Son of God, the true Son of God, eternal Son of God, became a man so that men, you and I, humanity, might become sons and daughters of God. You see this in verse 12 in John 1. To those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave us the right to become children of God, adopted into the triune family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why? Because the true Son, the Son by nature, became a man so that you and I might become sons and daughters by grace, by gift, adopted into God's family. Now, one of the truths about this is that in the incarnation, a whole lot about the world is revealed to you and I. No one's seen God, John says in verse 18. But the only God, the Son, who's at the Father's side, He has now made Him known. He has revealed Himself to humanity. Um, Christianity, at, at kind of its core, is a revealed religion. And this is an important thing for us to grasp, I think, as, as Christians, throughout our kind of maturity in our faith, to over and over again come back to the, the kind of foundation that our religion, our faith, is a revealed faith. It's a revealed religion. Which means this. It's not common sense. Right? I mean, you don't sit down and look at the stars one night and then slowly come to the conclusion that God is triune and the eternal word became man and Jesus of Nazareth and is revealed who God is like to us. These are truths that have to be revealed to us, revealed powerfully to us. I think in your own life, your experience would attest to this. One day, you probably just didn't reason yourself into faith, but there was probably some supernatural, miraculous means happening around you where where that kind of leads up to this moment or these moments or this period of time where you feel like God reveals himself to you in this kind of powerful way. Um, the incarnation is a, a revelatory experience. It reveals things to us, things that we would not have known otherwise. And what I want to do this week and then next week is highlight two of these things that the incarnation reveals to us. One, it reveals to us who God is. John says, no one's ever seen God. But now we've seen God. He's made him known in a way that we would not have known otherwise. And then two, Jesus in the incarnation reveals to us what humanity is supposed to be like, what true humanity is. You see, you and I are now sons and daughters of God. And Jesus, the one son, his life is made manifest in front of us. And in his life, as we watch him live, as we watch him be tempted, as we watch him obey, we get to see what it looks like for a human being, just like you and I. To truly be a son of God. To truly share in the relationship of love and unity with his father. Jesus reveals to us what true humanity looks like. One of the ways he does this is we get to see how he receives the love of the father. So eternally, Jesus as the son of God has received the perfect love of the father. And now we get to see in his life what that looks like in humanity. What does it look like for a human being to actually receive the love of of the Father God, and to actually share in the life of the Trinity, to be a part of God's family. Because as Christians, that's what you and I believe we have been brought into. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. But it's not always easy to figure out what it looks like and what it means to live as sons and daughters of God in our world. In Sugarland, Texas in 2013, what does it mean for a human being to, to think that they're a son of God, to think that they're a daughter of God? Well, in Jesus' life, that's revealed to us. We get to see what it looks like for this Palestinian Jew to truly believe that he's a son of the Father, to truly receive that love, it's revealed to us. If you have your scriptures, flip to Colossians 1. Jesus reveals what it looks like to receive the Father's love. In Colossians 1, which is to your right in your scriptures, I'll read to you from verse 15. Verse 20. 
23, Colossians 1, 15-23, this hymn, this poem about Christ. Paul says this, He is the image of the invisible God. He's talking about Jesus. We'll come back to this phrase. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with their thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19, here we have this incarnation again. In him, in Jesus of Nazareth, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell 100% deity. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, you and I, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled how in his body of flesh and the incarnation by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, the Father. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you have heard and which has been proclaimed in all of creation under earth, of which Paul is a minister himself. Jesus, he, he reveals to us what it looks like for a human being to receive the love of the Father. And then he reveals what it looks like to bear God's image. Um, so if you go back to verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. If you are a kind of what we might call an astute reader of the scriptures, okay, you might recognize this language. This is a pretty famous language from the Bible to be an image of God. In Genesis 1, God creates. He creates the world. And he gets to the creation of humanity, male and female. And it's a kind of a longer deliberation when he creates humanity. It seems to be kind of an emphatic point of creation. And, and kind of at the height of this, this emphasis, God, the triune God, speaking in plural, says, Let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. Again, I think you see this, this, this kind of two sides of the coin of God's revelation in Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, which means, one, when we see him, we see God. No one's ever seen God, John says, but when we see Christ, we see God. And then, two, we see what it looks like to be an image of God. We see what it was supposed to be as, as humans, what we were supposed to be all along. You and I, as humans, men and women, male and female, are created to reflect Jesus' life. When we see him live in the Gospels, we see what it means to be an image of God. What it means to reflect the image of God to all around us. I'll read for you a quote from Jonathan Martin. He says this. He asked the question this way. And this is kind of the question I want to get at this morning. He says this. What if the ultimate goal of everything that Jesus said and did was not just to get us to believe certain things about him, but to become like him? What if it were possible to become fully human in all the ways that Jesus was? What if Jesus was God's prototype for a whole new way of being human? In the incarnation, Jesus' life reveals to us what it means to be a human, how you and I are called to live and love and receive love as human beings made in the image of God. We, we once did not know fully what it meant to be God's people, and now we know because of the life of the Son. If you have your scriptures, again, flip with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're almost done flipping, I promise, Romans 8. Uh, I want to show you something here in a, a very popular passage of scripture. You see all these themes, again, rushing in together in Romans chapter 8. We'll pick it up in verse 12. 
the Son of God has become man so that men might become sons and daughters of God. The Son of God in his life reveals what humanity was always meant to be, verse 12, and now can be in his work. So then, brothers, Paul says, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Here we go, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons, are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, the sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We've been adopted as sons and daughters into the triune family. If you keep reading in verse 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know always what to pray for and how to pray as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Do you remember what we talked about last week? We, we get the benefits of sonship and daughtership. Jesus, as the Son of God, in the love of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, has this, this benefit, you might say, where the Spirit kind of watches him, has his back, intercedes on the Father in ways that maybe he doesn't even know about, maybe he can't um, even do, right? When, when it's too deep for even words, the Spirit groans on his behalf. You and I have that benefit as children of God. We've been adopted in. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now watch this work itself out. For those who are called according to his purpose, um, for those whom he foreknew, for those who he loved from the beginning of creation because he himself is love, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Note that. We'll come back to it. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also called um maybe you've never considered it this way but if you are a christian jesus's life is your destiny his his actions his lifestyle the kind of human that he is is whether you like it or not your end goal it's where you're going to end up He's predestined you to be conformed to the image of a son. This kind of maybe sounds like a, a, a kind of restraint to us. Um, we don't want to be conformed to an image, right? If there's one thing we don't want, it's to be conformed to an image. But again, this is no, no other image. It's not the image that your parents have for you. This is not the image that your friends have for you. This is the image that the Father of love has for you to receive and participate and enjoy the love of the Trinity. And your task, your goal, the mold that you are going towards is to look and to act and to think and to talk and to receive and to relate like the sun does. This is your destiny. Which is why I think one of the best questions we can ask ourselves every year as Christians is, in what ways are we more or less like Jesus than we were a year ago? Because we're all moving here. Regardless of how long it takes us, some of us might get there a little quicker. Some of us might get there a little a little longer. Some of us might get there on an easier path. Some of us might have to be beat up a little bit along the way. But we're, we're all going here. Are we going in the right direction? Did you spend this last year going in the right direction? Are you going to spend the next year going in the right direction? In what ways are you more or less like Jesus than you were a year ago? 
Well, you you following him in, in his revelation of what it means to be a human being, to receive the love of the Father and to, to reflect the image of God to those to those around you. So um, we might say this. I've got two little uh, cute phrases for you because that's what I do. Uh, <laughs> And, and they go like this. Christians are called, you and I are called, are sons and daughters of God, not just to believe in Jesus. Sometimes we reduce our faith to that. We believe in Jesus. Um, we're not called just to believe in Jesus, but to believe like Jesus. To believe that the Father loves us like Jesus believed that the Father loved him. To believe that the Father had called him to do things like the Father had called Jesus to do things. And we're not just called to... Um, we're, we're called not just to appreciate Jesus' actions, which again, I think sometimes it gets reduced to, our faith gets reduced to this, but we're called to adopt Jesus' actions. We're not called just, to, just to, to, to be the beneficiaries of certain things that he did. We're actually called to follow in that pattern, to, to become the same type of people who do the same type of things, because that's what it means to be a son and a daughter of God. That's what it looks like when one enjoys these privileges, these benefits. That's what it looks like for humans to thrive and to flourish. Was to believe like Jesus believed and to, to act like Jesus acted. The incarnation, I, I think, both this week and next week, as we talk about the revelation of humanity this week, the revelation of God next week, should drive you and I to go back to the Gospels um, with, with kind of a ferocity, with kind of a, a, a rigorous intent to look at what it, what it means to be a human, what it means um, when Jesus comes in the flesh. We see a picture of God that we've never seen before, and we, we see a picture of humanity that we've never seen before. It's something we, we kind of always want to do here at the church is, is push us back to the Gospels, Push us back to this, this revelation of God in Christ, um, which, which trumps all else that we might um, spend our time thinking about and spend our time um, focusing on. And so in that light, I'd, I'd like to, to maybe just unpack a few ways that, that we might look at Jesus' humanity and, and, and come up with ways that perhaps we might believe like Jesus believed and, and act like Jesus acted. So if you would with me, turn to Luke chapter 9. In, in just a kind of a series of a few stories back to back, I think we see a handful of things that we could extrapolate um, as we, we think about what it is um, for us to act like Jesus, what it is for us to be humans in the same way that Jesus was a human. I don't know if you are, uh, if you follow these sorts of things. This last week, there's uh, a lot of controversy. A popular TV host got in a bit of hot water for being pretty confident that Jesus was white. Do you, I don't know, anybody, anyone see this? It was in the context of a discussion about whether Santa Claus should remain to be white or not. Um, there's a, a, a pretty kind of famous argument that's going around saying Santa Claus as white is oppressive to all other to races. And, and, and so the solution actually that's been kind of proposed is Santa Claus should be a penguin, okay? Um, it's an animal. Everyone loves animals. You don't have to exclude anyone. Don't miss it. Penguins are black and white, okay? You see this? Yes. Um, so, so in the context of this discussion, um, the TV host was reminding the children at home uh, in a very confident way that Santa Claus was white. Uh, it was actually a historical figure. It's historically verifiable. This is true. There is a man traced back to Santa Claus. Unfortunately, he was not white, um, but we'll skip over that. And, and then in the context of kind of defending Santa Claus's whiteness, uh, she, she made this bold assertion that um, Jesus was white as well. It's a historically verifiable fact. Jesus was white. <coughs> the remarkable thing about this is the four other people who were in this discussion with her did not flinch at this statement. I mean, you'd expect out of four people on TV, one of them have a modicum of intelligence uh, about such things, but they didn't kind of flinch at, at all with the assertion. And of course, 
backlash has, <coughs> has ensued, right? Jesus was not white. Jesus was a Palestinian Jew. In fact, um, the incarnation is eternal, as we talked about last week. Jesus remains a Palestinian Jew. His, his Jewishness was not something that he took up and then left. The Son of God has eternally become a Jewish Middle Eastern man. This is something that we need to wrestle with. This is something, actually, that the Nazis forgot. <laughs> I mean, we laugh, but f- for real, right? You can study biblical scholarship. After Nazi Germany, we started to kind of remember, and there was a focus on the Jewishness of Jesus, because we had started to make him this kind of ahistorical character. And it becomes a lot easier to kill Jewish men in the name of Jesus when you forget that Jesus himself was a Jew. He, he was a Jew. It's important to know who Jesus was. It's important to, to analyze his life because, again, it reveals to us what humanity is like. Uh, just recently, my mother told me to shave, and I said, no, mother, I'm trying to be like Jesus. This is part of my sanctification process. I'm growing it out. She didn't buy it. In case you were but uh, <clears throat> sanctification is slower for some, as we discussed. So we will... We'll keep her in our prayers. Um, we'll look at uh, Luke chapter 9. We'll pick up in verse 7. Um, because right there, there are some things that we aren't called to imitate Christ in. You're not called to grow out a beard like his. Ladies, please don't. You're not called to be a carpenter. You're not called to adopt the diet of a Palestinian Jew. Um, there, there are ways that we're called to imitate Christ, and, and there are ways that perhaps... Um, we are not called, and so it's important to, to run back to the Gospels and see what it means to be a human being. Um, I think we get a good picture of this in this series of stories. So Luke 9, we'll pick it up in verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening with Jesus, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John, John the Baptist, that is, had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So John has some skin in the game, if, uh, or Herod has some skin in the game if John the Baptist comes back to life. He had beheaded him um, for saying some mean things about him and his newly uh, married wife. And so um, this is actually a common claim about Jesus. People are grappling with, who is this guy? What's he doing? Um, and, and people say, well, maybe it's John the Baptist risen again from the grave. Maybe it's Elijah, prophet of old, come back, or, or maybe one of many other prophets come back. I actually recently had my high schoolers uh, write a creative story on a story from the Gospels. One of them chose the beheading of John the Baptist from the point of view of the executioner. He had a very intense background story. It was called the Red Monster because over the years he didn't wash the blood off of his body. Anyways, I called a counselor. We'll be okay. <laughs> But Herod and John the Baptist have a very intense kind of history between each other. Herod's hearing about what Jesus is doing, and he says, who is this guy? What's going on? You and I, I think, should adopt this question. Who is this guy? What's going on? We should, like King Herod, seek to see him. Verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God. And cured those who, need, who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. 
But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all of these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them the disciples to set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. One of our favorite stories about Jesus, he feeds, he multiplies the bread and the fish and feeds this great crowd. One of the things I think that we can draw from Jesus' life, what it means to be a human being, is it, it means to be someone who is focused on the kingdom. From, from start to finish, Jesus' life is focused on the kingdom of God, which is this news that God's reality is invading our reality, that, that heaven is invading earth, that God's will is starting to be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we pray every week when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is kind of Jesus' single-mindedly, single-minded focus throughout his, his ministry. And so he, he comes here, he's preaching about the kingdom of God, and then he sees a crowd, as he often does, is compassionate on them, and uses the resources at his fingertips to provide for them. This is the call for you and I, for us to be kingdom people, for us to be focused on the kingdom, for us, with our time and our resources, with our skills, with our abilities, to look at the world around us and wonder, imagine, dream, how God's will might further be done. How heaven might further come to earth. We've heard from Sam. We continue to invite you to pray on Thursdays. This is one of the ways that, that First Colony Church, has, as a, a corporate group of people, decided to dream about the world around us. What might it look like? How might it involve us? We don't have, I don't think at least, the ability to multiply bread and fish like Jesus does. Our resources are different. We have prayer. We have fasting. We have money. We have time. We have different skills and sets of skills. We have, we have different kind of desires, different, different ways that we like to work, different ways that we work best, different people groups that we're naturally attracted to. And we're all called, like Jesus, to, to be about the kingdom, to be kingdom-focused, to wonder how in our lives, how in, in our time and our resources and our money and our skills might we bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven further. So to be kingdom focused is to, to be a true human, to be a fully thriving and flourishing human. If we keep reading in verse 18, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. This is a great sentence. If you spend a few moments thinking about kind of the words used here, as it happened, he was praying alone and the disciples were with him. Uh, just again, kind of think about this scene. Okay, he's alone, but the disciples are with him, but they're praying. He's praying alone, but he's praying with the disciples. They're all together in this kind of community, unity, and diversity. Don't worry about it. Don't think too hard about it. He's praying. Okay, this is actually a, a pretty common theme throughout uh, the Gospel of Luke and throughout all the Gospels. Jesus spends a lot of time in prayer. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, before almost any big decision, you'll find Jesus by himself with the disciples praying. In fact, at his lowest moment, his moment of, of most doubt, of most fear and anxiety, at maybe what we might perhaps think is his most truly human moment, <clears throat> Jesus rushes to be alone with his disciples and to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, to commune with the Father. Now we think of Jesus' prayer life in the Gospels, and again, if we don't have kind of a, a Trinitarian vocabulary or, or an incarnational vocabulary, we get confused really easy. How is it that God is praying to God? Is it schizophrenic? Is it like Mike when he talks to himself, and we all get really worried, call for an intervention? 
Trinity, three persons, distinct, separate persons, sharing the same essence, the same characteristics, nature, stuff of divinity. It's the Father and the Son communicating. It's really not as maybe complicated as we make it out to be. The Son who's received love from the Father for all of eternity comes to the Father to talk, to communicate, to give and to receive love. In fact, throughout this scripture, throughout the, the Gospels, Jesus is led by the Spirit. He receives the Spirit at his baptism. The Spirit leads him into certain places. He does mighty works through and in the Spirit. And we wonder again, what does this mean for God to be led by God? But again, he's showing us what it looks like to be a human. A human being is one who, who's led by the Spirit, who's sensitive to the Spirit. I think this is the second thing we get here. We, we've got to be kingdom-focused, and then we've got to be Spirit-dependent people, people who are dependent on the Holy Spirit. True humans don't make decisions based on five-year plans or in the context of career paths. True humans make decisions in the context of prayer closets, in times of fasting. Sometimes those decisions are surprising. Sometimes those decisions create controversy, confusion. Maybe even hurt by those who, who can't see inside. But this is what it means to be a true human being, to go alone in the, the early hours of the morning and to pray. To wonder where might the Spirit be leading me? How might, be, how might I o- obediently follow the Spirit's leading? So Jesus, he, he's alone by himself with the disciples praying. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? What's the word on the street? They answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Again, this is a pretty common theme. This is people confused about Jesus' identity. These are the three options often given. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ, the Messiah of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus is going to consistently throughout the Gospels be teaching his disciples about the fate that was to to come of him. That he was on his way to the cross. He was on his way to give his life for others. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus displays this consistent desire throughout the Gospels to love self-sacrificially. To pour out God's love to other people, even if it means standing in the gap of pain and hurt and suffering. Jesus does not believe in, in hoarding rights and stuff and privilege and comfort. He believes in giving it away freely. He doesn't believe in tithing 10%. He believes in, in tithing until it hurts. He doesn't believe in, in volunteering with your left overtime. He believes in giving up time elsewhere to volunteer. He doesn't believe in giving up your leftover food, you might say. He believes in you giving up your meal and not eating instead. Self-sacrificial love, love that sacrifices, love that costs, love that hurts. And he consistently is going to say, this is kind of what's going to lead to my death on the cross, as I give my life for all of humanity. And, and the interesting thing about this is almost every time Jesus teaches his disciples about his fate on the cross, he follows it up with the same instructions for them. 
Likewise, you, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Be prepared to die. Be prepared to lose everything so that you might gain everything. Jesus has this kind of cruciform nature, this cross-like nature, this self-sacrificial nature to him. You and I, as, as those who desire to be humans in the same way that Jesus was a human, are those who are called to be committed to sacrificial love. To the, to the, to the call to give up so that we might bless. To the call to, to serve so that we might be great, to be slaves so that we might be first. To sacrificially love the people around us. Again, we, we often appreciate Jesus' act on the cross, but we don't often adopt it. We don't often realize the close connection between what he has done and what we've done. In fact, I've had these conversations where, where you talk about um, why we should love in such ways and why we should give up our lives in such ways. And people go, well, well that doesn't apply to us. It just applies to Jesus because he was doing something unique. He was dying on the cross for our sins. It had to happen that way. But it doesn't have to happen that way for you and I. We're not called to die for the sins of the world. Again, while this is true, this is not the picture you get in the Gospels. What happens on the cross is what Jesus has told his disciples to do throughout his entire life. When you're cursed, bless. On the cross, Jesus is cursed, but he blesses. When you're confronted with enemies, love them. Jesus is confronted with enemies on the cross, and he loves them. When someone does evil to you, pray for them. Jesus prays for them. Give up your life. Love those around you. In fact, this is probably the locus of what we're called to imitate in the, the scriptures of, about Christ. We're called to imitate his cross. We're called to imitate his, his love for other people. And, and the cross, the, the call to take up the cross is not, sometimes we've reduced it, if we, we have paid attention to it, to kind of this, this command to just endure tough times. So you're going to get sick, but that might just be a cross you have to bear. Or you're going to have this, this annoying person in your life, but that's just your cross to bear. Although those may be things that you might put under that category. Bearing a cross in this context means being willing to suffer for being obedient and faithful to the Father. It's not a generic kind of self-help endurance message. It's a follow me and let's go die together. We sang about it, this life that I'm living for, this life that I'm dying for. This resurrection life. Jesus, I mean, if we were to try to put ourselves in the shoes of these disciples here, okay? Let's pretend that I'm Jesus, and let's pretend that you're the disciples. I don't know why there's laughter immediately. <laughs> I come to you and say, follow me. Let's go. Now again, for the disciples, this was was kind of a straightforward command. We take this metaphorically. If I'm at a youth camp, I said, you want to follow Jesus? What I mean is in your heart, in your mind, do you want to follow Jesus? What Jesus means is stand up and, and come after me, right? I'm going to start traveling and you're going to come with me. Pack up your stuff, leave your family, quit your jobs, come with me. In fact, that's what the disciples did, right? They left their families, they quit their jobs, they followed after him. It's a kind of intense, intimidating situation. Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, you have to be prepared to pick up your cross, Again, when we hear that, we think you might be prepared to have to suffer a little bit, okay? You might have to cut down some vacation time. You might have to sell that second yacht, okay, in the Bahamas. I had to give it to the poor people. But when Jesus is telling his disciples this, he's, he's saying, hey, there's actually this, this torture instrument that they put people on who don't obey them, and that's where we're going. I might say, follow me. And in a few years, we might find ourselves on a table being lethally injected together. Let's go. We all, we all go, oh, what? 
Jesus seems to think that the faithful obedience to Christ, to, to the Father, might involve you, you suffering, real suffering, real sacrifice. Might involve you, you going down in the world so that you might experience the life of the resurrection. We're called to be kingdom-focused. We're called to be dependent on the Spirit. We're called to, to sacrificially love. I want to end this morning by saying that that I think it's always important when we talk about imitating Christ to, to remember and to remind ourselves that our imitation of Christ is not a helpless imitation. In the same way that, that you might think about watching Tiger Woods play golf and going, now that's a golf player. If I've ever seen a golf player, that's a golf player. And then going out on the golf course and trying to imitate Tiger Woods. All you'll learn about this is the vulgar profanity and vocabulary you've built up over your life, okay? And how miserably you fail in comparison to Tiger Woods. Well, just me at golfing? Okay. It brings out, it brings out the worst. Sometimes we look at Jesus' life and I think we have the same reaction. Jesus was really good at being a human being. And it kind of puts us to shame. And sometimes we go out on Monday and we're like, we're going to act like Jesus. And by 10 o'clock, we're like, Wow. And we, we feel shamed, we feel guilty, we feel a little embarrassed. But the life we're called to as Christians imitating Christ is a life where we're not just called to helplessly imitate, but we're actually given transformative power through the Spirit. He helps us, he teaches us. It might be more akin to a, a piano player who plays this beautiful piece and then takes a child and, and doesn't say, play it, but says, let me teach you how to play it. Let me help you play it. When you can't play it, there might just be some extra fingers on the keyboard filling in those notes for you. It's a life that involves transformation. Help. Jesus, the Spirit, will come. He'll guide you. And it's a life that involves forgiveness and grace and mercy. In a sense, you might say, we're playing on house money. We're forgiven. We're loved. You failing to be the perfect human being is not going to change that. It'd be like the, the piano teacher who hears the bad notes and says, let's just keep playing. Let's keep making these more and more beautiful, better and better times. When my little brother was real little, he was born when I was 12 years old, and kind of got to watch him grow up, and, and there's a time in, in a little kid's life when they, they kind of start to move, they start to be mobile, they start to crawl. I mean, first it's a little scooch, right? And they start to crawl, and this is really when things get crazy, because now you, you know, they can go anywhere. You can't leave things out. And then they kind of start to like hold themselves up against things, right? They, they put their hands on the couch, they put their hands on the coffee table, and themselves up. And then there's that one special day. I happened to be there for this, for my, my little brother. When they let go of the coffee table, and they take a step. And then they got this big baby head, and gravity just takes them down to the floor, right? And it was really weird, because when my brother took this step, there was a handful of us in the room, my mother, my father, myself, my sister, I think a friend of mine. Not one of us started making fun of my brother because he couldn't walk. Now, mind you, we've all been walking for a while, okay? <laughs> it comes pretty easy to us. I don't know if you've seen, but I've been successfully walking across the stage. <laughs> People have described my walk as a swagger of sorts. <laughs> no one goes, are you kidding me? You stupid, stupid little baby. You can't walk like the rest of us can walk. It's one step, two step, foot after foot after foot. Come on, what are you doing? This is embarrassing. What happened actually is we all exploded like we had just won the lottery. Did you? He took a step. Did you see? He took a step. 
Again, it's probably more just like momentum. It was like a sustained fall, okay, where you, by instinct, put a foot out to stop yourself and then go down. And, and over time, you take two steps and then three steps and then four steps, and then you're, you're kind of walking across the room from one person to the other person, and then you're kind of running, and pretty soon you're an adult walking and running and, and moving all over the place. And the, the role of the parent is not to, to chide the child as they fall, it's to celebrate the steps, I think this is an analogy for, for our growth as, as humans, our growth as children, the sons and daughters of God. God the Father, in pure love for us, and the forgiveness we receive through the cross, through Jesus, doesn't watch us try and then, then get disappointed when we fall, but he celebrates the step. He says, look at, look, at that, look at that kingdom day. Look at that decision where they were spirit-dependent. Look at that sacrifice. Look at that love. And he celebrates. We're transformed and we're, we're forgiven. When we come to the table to, to celebrate these things that Christ has given us his life to share in, we, we participate in it. And in his life we find forgiveness. I know of no better way this morning to come and to, to celebrate these truths and to come and worship at the table. To come and participate in what Christ has done for us. As he calls us into a new way of being human. That we might receive the Father's love and reflect the Father's image to those around us. Would you pray with me? As we pray on our third Sunday of Advent, unexpected God, your Advent alarms us. Wake us from drowsy worship, from the sleep that neglects love, and the sedative of misdirected frenzy. Awaken us now to your coming and bend our angers into your peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, all of God's people said, Amen.